You're listening to the On The Go With VAO News Podcast for the week ending January 22nd, 2016. Hello and welcome back to our weekly recap of the top headlines from this week's daily acquisition news. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bill Olver, VAO content developer and senior news writer. And I'm Dara Curran, content developer and fellow news writer. The Office of Personal Management has notified agencies they may, during calendar year 2016, approve certain exceptions to limits placed back in June 2011 on recruitment, relocation, and retention incentives, or the three R's. The move is aimed at helping agencies meet critically urgent staffing requirements in areas like cybersecurity. Exceptions to the spending limit must be approved internally by HR officials and clearly document the critical need being addressed. OPM or the Office of Management and Budget may also ask to see the supporting documentation for any approved exceptions. Additional guidance regarding 3R policies is available on OPM's website. The Department of Energy has issued a new acquisition letter that outlines contracting officer responsibilities for approving certain contractor costs relating to compensation and benefits. DOE is moving from a traditional transactional approach to one that is risk-based, so if risk-reducing conditions have been met, CEOs do not necessarily have to put their stamp on increases in contractor compensation, pension contributions above the minimum required amount, or changes to contractor benefit plans. Included with the AL is a special H clause, which COs should, by February 29th, take action to incorporate into contracts, as well as making sure the revisions don't conflict with existing contract provisions. Changes can be made through the Statement of Work if the H clause is not appropriate, and contracting officers may, with advance approval from the proper Head of Contracting Activity and DOE Office of Acquisition Management Contracting, modify the clause to fit the particular program or worksite conditions. National Nuclear Security Administration COs should obtain HCA permission before bilaterally modifying contracts to incorporate the clause. The AL applies to management and operating contracts, non-MNO major site and facility management contracts, contracts subject to DOE Order 350.1, and contracts that include provisions for DOE reimbursement of contractor human resource costs. It is effective immediately. A new survey from the Association of Government Accountants found that federal CIOs are enthusiastic about the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, but a little less so about their ability to communicate the value of IT to their peers and senior officials. AGA surveyed federal CIOs, CFOs, and procurement managers for their report. By the numbers, 100% of respondents said they had been involved in developing their agency's IT strategies. 86% credited Fatera with driving this level of collaboration. 88% noted that their agencies recognized that Fatera gives CIOs greater authority to make changes to failing IT projects, but nearly 80% believed they would encounter resistance to changing their agency's governance structure to expand CIO authorities over IT projects and budgets. More than half of respondents said they still struggle to communicate the cost savings of successful IT investments, citing the difficulty of quantifying efficiencies gained from new technologies as a contributing factor. 100% said recruiting and retaining acquisition talent is a top challenge. 
More than half said an in-house IT function would be more effective than a shared solution, partly because shared services might not address unique requirements. Instead, these officials supported the use of GWACs, which define contracting procedures as well as potential commercial sources. Other respondents suggested that a mix of in-house and centrally managed services could deliver better results. And the survey also found that agencies still are investing heavily in maintaining legacy systems and may be slow to adopt commercial off-the-shelf solutions. Respondents pointed out a few challenges. Uh, Updating legacy systems can be difficult and costly. Users may lack the skills to manage the new technology. And commercial solutions might not fully address agency requirements. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Division is ready to test a new contracting approach that uses other transaction authority to make it easier for small, innovative startup companies to do business with the department. The approach encompasses four phases with a down select after each one. Potential vendors will submit written applications in response to research challenges and, if selected, will present their solutions to panels of experts. The department aims to cut the award time to less than four months. The first set of awards, valued at approximately $5 million, will go to firms with innovative ideas for securing the Internet of Things. Subsequent awards are planned for aviation security, border security, cybersecurity, and counterterrorism. The House has introduced a measure that would renew an expiring authority that allows the Government Accountability Office to review vendor protests filed in relation to task orders valued at $10 million or more. The initial 2008 measure is slated to expire at the end of fiscal 2016, but the Defending America's Small Contractors Act, or H.R. 4341, would extend the period indefinitely. Other provisions in the bill would align the definitions and regulations for veteran-owned small businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, which currently differ a bit between the Department of Veterans Affairs and Small Business Administration. The bill would also amend the Small Business Act to require SBA to set annual small business goals against the total value of fiscal year contract dollars, rather than against the so-called small business eligible dollars. In fiscal year 2014, eligible small business spending equaled $367 billion, which lawmakers say excluded as much as 20% of federal contract spending. So that could be quite a big change if that goes through. Former Defense Logistics Agency Energy Bulk Fuels Contracting Division Chief Donald Peshka has received the 2015 Acquisition and Contracting Legends Award from the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. The award recognizes individuals in the contracting field who embody leadership and mentorship in executing the defense mission. According to Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Director Claire Grady, Peshka was an instrumental part of the DLA Energy Program and mentored, coached, and inspired others. In regulatory news, the Department of Health and Human Services is the latest agency to adopt OMB guidance on federal grant programs. Effective January 20th, HHS incorporated that guidance into its regulations along with a few editorial and grammatical corrections. A proposed rule published this week would amend the FAR to implement language in the Small Business Jobs Act that requires prime contractors to notify their contracting officer in writing if they have made reduced payments to a small business subcontractor or are more than 90 days past due in paying one. The CO, in turn, is required to record the identity of contractors with a history of late or reduced payment in FAPIS. SBA incorporated this language into its regulations in July 2013, and this proposed rule would add these requirements to the FAR. Comments are due by March 21st in order to be considered in the formation of a final rule. 
Another proposed rule issued this week would amend the FAR to implement a section of last year's continuing resolution that prohibits the use of funds for a contract with an entity that inquires employees or subcontractors to sign an internal confidentiality agreement that restricts employees from lawfully reporting waste, fraud, and abuse to the government. Comments on that proposed rule are due by March 22nd. And uh, that brings us to the discussion portion of the podcast. Now, our news has been a little slow lately, as everyone probably knows. Uh, People are still recovering from the holidays, probably. Uh, So this week, we're going to take a look at something we've been researching for a while for the past few weeks. Our topic, uh, which was actually suggested by our listener... Our, our one list- listener, <laughs> our listener, is pit protests. Uh, now, the protests always generate a lot of interest whenever we cover them. Uh, you know, our news articles get a lot of hits on our website. We get a lot of positive feedback uh, for the protest section in our monthly webinar. So, I, I was really intrigued by this suggestion. Um, specifically, we're going to take a look at some decisions where GAO and agencies have disagreed about the interpretation of statutory requirements, and where GAO and the courts uh, have disagreed. So today we're going to talk about one protest in which GAO and the Court of Federal Claims disagreed on some statutory language about competition. Ooh, okay. Well, in the original protest, a construction firm challenged the Department of State's pre-qualification of two competing offerers uh, as United States persons per the Omnibus Diplomatic Security and Anti-Terrorism Act of 1986. Now, that act establishes preferences for U.S. contractors for diplomatic construction and design projects. It's actually kind of sounding like Citizens United decisions that gave the super PACs to us. Oh, corporations are people too. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, The protester argued that one firm fell short of qualifying for the act's requirements for technical and financial resources, as well as historic business volume, and therefore should have been ineligible eligible to submit a proposal in the first place. Then they also alleged a second competitor fell short of the historic business volume qualification as well as performing similarly valued construction work. Once again, those two things should have made them ineligible to compete. In this particular case, GAO agreed with the protester, and they found the State Department had incorrectly calculated the bidder's recent required business experience as defined in the Act. And that's the key bit here, because the State Department disagreed with GAO's interpretation, relied instead on a diverging court opinion, and decided to ignore GAO's recommendations. The protester then took its case to court, as they do. Yes, they do. As you mentioned, this is not the first time GAO's decision on this area has been challenged in court, uh, nor nor the first time the courts have disagreed. GAO cites a few previous cases where the same challenge was made and the same disagreement arose. Now, the dispute here revolves around the plain language of the Omnibus Diplomatic Security and Anti-Terrorism Act. Now, the act says that bidders for these type of construction projects, uh, State Department embassy projects, must have, and I quote, achieved total business volume equal to or greater than the value of the project being bid in three years of the five-year period before the closing date of the solicitation. GAO interpreted this language to mean that bidders must have worked on similarly sized projects in each of the three years individually within the five-year period. Basically, bidders need to show business volume in three years equal to the total amount of the solicitation. Okay, well, that sounds fairly reasonable. The law addresses areas like financial and human resources for companies that are bidding on diplomatic construction projects. A contractor does need to demonstrate the ability to mobilize 
adequate staffing and funds to perform the contract in order to be eligible to bid. State Department uh, construction projects, they're mostly overseas. This one was in Mozambique. So that's a valid concern. We are talking about a lot of mobilization required. Yes, yes, a lot of coordination. But the court said that GAO was legally incorrect based on the language in the act. Now, the court interpreted this requirement to be cumulative meaning that bidders could add up the total value of business volume over a three-year period to equal the size of the project at hand. Now, GAO believes that if lawmakers wanted the definition to mean cumulative, they would have written that. In its protest decision, GAO makes the distinction between total business volume in three of the past five years and total cumulative business volume in that period. Now, obviously, the court disagreed. And second, the court said that GEO's interpretation was restrictive of competition. Uh, How so? Well, the court noted that the value of the construction project at hand would be spread out over several years. So requiring companies to show similar business volume in just one year would limit competition to companies performing much higher volumes of work than the procurement itself. Uh, So just breaking down this case, the value of the project was $160 million total. GAO says the law requires to have $160 million in business volume in three of the most recent five years. The court says that since the contract would be spread out over three years, say $50 million each year of work, then contractors only have to show that they had total business volume of $160 million over a three-year period. Now, here's a quote from the judge's decision. Uh, The project is scheduled to be completed in 33 months, just shy of three years, making the total business volume requirement, if read cumulatively, consistent with the length of the project. In contrast, imposing a more rigorous per-year requirement for meeting business volume would force a prospective offerer to have completed triple the volume of the project's estimated value in a three-year period in order to pre-qualify. This reading would impose an unduly onerous qualification requirement and yield less competition. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. They turned the math for the existing project back as a counterpoint to GAO's decision. The conflict here It's partly between the language and the intent, but also between what we would normally consider a relevant past performance reference and the specific legal requirement that bidders in this case have to meet in order to be eligible to bid in the first place. GEO's interpretation, it seems to me, it's using that past performance lens. So in order to bid, offerers need to show they worked on projects of a similar size. But in this case, it's total business volume, not simply the individual projects. Right, right. And it's a fine line. And interestingly, in the law's definition of qualified bidders, uh, Section 402, which establishes the business volume requirements, also defines adequate competition as two or more bidders who have performed within the United States, administrative and technical professional or construction services, similar in complexity, type of construction, and value to the project being bid. Aha, so there is a requirement for projects similar in scope and value for bidders to even qualify. Exactly, and that suggests to me maybe that the court's interpretation is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, GEO's interpretation would limit competition only to the very largest uh, construction firms, right? I mean, in this case, companies that handled $160 million in business each year for three years. That would shut out a lot of smaller contractors. Mm. You know, normally, I, I tend to fall on the GAO side of these kinds of disputes, and I, mm-hmm. I, I do think I understand uh, the reasoning for their interpretation. They're 
they're splitting hairs, mm-hmm. right? Total business volume versus total cumulative business volume. But GAO is really in the hair splitting business. Right. You know, they, they have to go strictly by the language in the law and how language has been interpreted over time, not just by the courts, but by Congress. So you know, even a small word like shall you know, has, has legal weight. And I learned that real quick when I started working right. for ASI. <laughs> shall is not should. Right. If a law says an agency shall do something, that is a requirement. That is not a suggestion. Yes. That's not a best practice. That's that's you got it. That's a have to. You know. So I hear. I think GAO is merely being very conservative um, in its interpretation. Uh, you know, con- Congress didn't explicitly say cumulative, mm-hmm. so GAO isn't assuming the definition is cumulative. You know, that said, the court's opinion, I think, is also reasonable. Uh, it's based more on a common sense reading of the language and the context of how it would affect uh, the agency and the competition for the project. Both of the companies being protested uh, met the requirement for individual projects, and it's mm. just the definition of total business volume that's being challenged. Right, total, cumulative, da-da-da. It, it sounds like Congress needs to step in and address this by clarifying the language that's in the law. You know, what was their intent when they wrote this? Which which did they mean? It, if this disagreement even rises to a level where it would catch their attention, and if they could themselves agree on what they wanted to clarify it to. <laughs> exactly, yeah, who's left from 30 years ago? <laughs> Who wrote the law? So, uh, so, <laughs> so presumably, either GAO or uh, State Department would have to ask for clarification and press for language to be included in something down the line. Presumably, I would say in an appropriations act, since we're talking about contract law. So that's all we have uh, for this week. That's our first protest case. Um, however, we will continue this discussion on next week's podcast with a look at some GAO court disagreements over language relating to small business contracting and set-asides, uh, including one case that is headed all the way to the Supreme Court. Very interesting. And, and remember your small words, you guys, when you're writing your, your RFPs and your RFIs. Don't, don't leave those out. So yeah. if you are a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office, website, you can find links to this week's headlines for further reading on VAO on the same page where you downloaded the podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you'll join us again for our next daily news podcast on January 29th. If you're interested, we'd also hope to see you on January 28th for our next webinar. This is for contracting officers representatives, and we'll be talking about cost reimbursement contract types. Again, that is Thursday, January 28th, and you'll find the link to the invitation to that webinar on the same page where you found this podcast. Thanks for tuning in.